that we're going to read Jude all up. So if you want to go to Jude, turn right to the end of your Bible and come back one and pass Revelation back to Jude. It's a short book. Uh, Our series obviously is the short of it all. And then Dean in a moment is going to come and uh, see what God's been teaching him and what uh, God will teach us through his Holy Spirit through the words that uh, Dean is going to speak this morning. You might have a slightly different version of me. That's okay. I'm reading the one that uh, Dean will be reading from. Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James to those who are called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. May mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, while I was making every effort to write you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. For certain persons I have for certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now I desire to remind you though you know all things once for all, that the Lord, after saving a people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently subsequently destroyed those who did not believe. And angels who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode, he has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they in the same way as these indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh, are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. Yet in the same way, these men also by dreaming defile the flesh and reject authority and revile angelic majesties. But Michael the archangel, when he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses, did not dare pronounce against him a railing judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these men revile the things which they do not understand. And the things which they know by instinct, like unreasoning animals, by these things they are destroyed. Woe to them, for they have gone the way of Cain, and for pay they have rushed headlong into the error of Balaam and perished in the rebellion of Korah. These are the men who are hidden reefs in your love feasts when they feast with you without fear, caring for themselves. Clouds without water carried along by the winds, autumn trees without fruit, doubly dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up their own shame like foam, wandering stars for whom the black darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these men that Enoch, in the seventh generation from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all and to convict all the ungodly of their ungodly deeds which they have done in an ungodly way and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are the grumblers, find fault, following after their own lusts. They speak arrogantly, flattering people for the sake of gaining an advantage. Keep yourselves in the love of God. But you, beloved or to remember the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, that they were saying to you, in the last time there will be mockers following after their own ungodly lusts. These are the ones who cause divisions, worldly-minded, devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, build yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves in the love of God, 
waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. And have mercy on some who are doubting. Save others, snatching them out of the fire. And on some have mercy with fear, hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy, to the only God, our Saviour, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. So let me pray for Dean as he brings uh, the word to us. Thank you, Lord God, for your servant Dean. We thank you again, too, that he is part of your family and that uh, you've given him this time this morning, Lord God, to uh, speak to your people uh, through the Holy Spirit that we might learn and become more like Jesus, Father. Would you give us minds and ears that are open to your word? Uh, Would you give us hearts that are ready to receive, Lord God, and then feet that are ready to act? So we uh, would pray a blessing on Dean now as he speaks to us in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, John. Wow, what an absolute blessing it is to be back here. Yeah? It's been a few years, but what a joy. I'm really looking forward to, to um, sharing God's word with you from the book of Jude. And I hope you're all there at the book of Jude. It's not long. You know, um, one of the thoughts I came to when I was uh, studying this book is, what do you do when somebody shouts... Watch out! Is anybody awake out there? Yeah? Our natural reaction is to, and some psychologists call this, to fight or flight. Yeah? You make an instantaneous decision uh, when you're placed in a, a dangerous situation or when you see a loved one is placed in a dangerous situation, you say, you, you just react, don't you? It's an automatic response. You don't sit there and say, look, we need to have a detailed discussion about this dangerous behaviour we've just seen. Yeah? You just respond, don't you? Yeah? And um, the trouble with the fight-or-flight response is you can actually find yourself in a more dangerous situation than you were initially and, uh, because you haven't thought about the consequences of your actions. Some of you know that uh, I've been a health and safety manager in various companies for almost 20 years and I've spent a whole career uh, trying to understand risk and human behaviour. And as part of my learning process, I've actually collected some really interesting warning signs. And I just want to show a couple to you, so if you can bring them up. They're very helpful. Okay. Next slide. (laughs) Darn that technology... Yeah? Never mind. Okay. The key thing I wanted to show from these marvellous pictures <laughs> was that recognising that people react in the strangest ways. Ah, here we go. Here are the interesting warning signs. Perhaps not. Here we go. Warning to tourists do not laugh at the natives. You come across that before? Fantastic warning sign. Here's another one. Next one. Do not hold the wrong end of the chainsaw. Extremely helpful. Next one. Touching wires causes instant death. $200 fine. That's very helpful. Notice it's in Newcastle. (laughs) Okay. 
you know, recognising and, and understanding the fact that people react in the strangest ways when they're actually in a stressful situation or in a frightening situation. You know, you need to have a plan to manage this weakness because we're human. That's who we are. We know for a fact, for example, and we're very thankful for this, that pilots undergo quite extensive training in simulators where they actually learn about how to manage a dangerous situation when they find themselves in an uh, unsafe situation with the aircraft. Similarly, with submarine captains... They go through hundreds of scenarios where they learn to deal with an emergency or a crisis situation. They learn to watch out. That's their skill. And when I read the letter of Jude, I realize that the book of Jude really is a watch-out book. It's a warning, and it's yelling at us today to get our attention. One of the things, well, there's many things that fascinate me about the book of Jude, and you're going to get a few of them, is that only 68% of the letter is a warning. And it's a watch out. And, and it's telling us what to do and the sorts of things that we need to watch out for. And it's also fascinating that only 16% of the letter tells us how to prepare, how we can respond to these people. And we're going to touch on that. So tell me, how would you feel, now be honest with me, now think this through, when you've known a person who purports to be a Christian, you've known them for years, you've respected them, You've sought their advice and their counsel. You've prayed with them. They've been very encouraging, almost to the point of gushy and flattering. They look the part and they sound the part in terms of their Christian language. You know, they have the fabulous suit. They find themselves sometimes getting into leadership roles. They have the right Bible translation. They have the right worship songs. And to all intents and purposes, they have it together. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah? Okay. And then over time you find that that person's been talking behind your back. That's interesting. That's uh, of things you have no knowledge of. And then you find that they've been quite divisive and almost destructive to the point that their behaviour is almost not Christ-like. And somehow you, this person has found themselves into leadership roles. And over time you start to pick up that there's discord and they're having arguments about the biblical interpretation of Scripture. Once what was a harmonious church starts falling apart from the inside, I mean, how would you feel? Yeah? I mean, I'd feel angry. I'd feel duped. I'd feel stunned. I'd be disappointed that I'd been so easily fooled. Yeah? Is that how you'd feel? I would. We as Christians spend a lot of time guarding against the world and its ungodly influences, but perhaps we need to spend some time thinking about the danger within. And this is exactly what Jude is talking about, the danger within today, the danger that we need to watch out for. I have a sense that uh, Jude is like a watch-out warning, and it's imperative that he gets this warning out with speed, and he does it without too many ears and graces. He's very much to the point and very sharp. And so after a short greeting, these are the words he says. He says, look at this, Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you, so you get that sense of urgency, he's really keen, to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt I had to write to you and urge you to contend for the faith that was once and for all entrusted to the saints. Verse 4, certain men whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They are godless men who change the grace of our God into license for immorality and deny 
Jesus Christ, our only sovereign Lord. He starts out by saying that we need to contend contend for the faith, which by today's standards seems like a pretty weak word, don't you think? You think, oh, let's go and contend, shall we? Yeah, seems a wee bit weak. But what it means is that we're in for a fight. And that fight is in our backyard. That fight is in our church. And what it literally means is that when we contend for the faith, we have to deal it with skill and commitment in opposing anything that is not of the faith. Yeah? Yikes! When I read that, I thought, you know what? We're supposed to contend with our uh, faith, with skill and commitment within the church? I mean, when can I fit that in? You know, I've got work tomorrow. You know, I've got kids to put to bed. I've got dishes to do. I've got things to fix. You know, when am I going to fit that in? That's a toughie, isn't it? Contend for the faith? I mean, come on, Dean. Life should be a bit easier than that. It gets even more interesting because Jude then goes on to say that these men have slipped, you know, slither, slithered into the church and they're amongst us. They come in almost undetected. And the only characteristic which reveals who they are is their destructive fruit. The destructive fruit that Jude outlines is usually is very extensive and quite damning. And we'll go into that a little bit later on. However, we need to answer a critical question. How do you prepare so that we can recognize these people who want to sneak in and destroy our church. That's the warning. Remember, if we respond with the, with the, you know, the fight or flight, we can actually get ourselves into more trouble. So we need a plan, and we need to think about how we respond and how we can recognize the danger signs. And the hard part is, is that sometimes that training, sometimes that, that, that prayer, that spending time in God's Word can actually be hard work it can be it's a discipline yeah i remember one time when i was in the united states i did some training over there on human behavior and and so on and i was told at a lecture about how the fbi trains the agents to recognize fraudulent notes it was actually um u.s dollar bills yeah and it was really really interesting because what they do is they start out by looking at hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of authentic bills all right and they get them and they notice the composition, they notice the colour, they notice the layout of each of the bill, and they learn to recognise the material they made from, they recognise the smell. Can you smell your money? No? Okay. And, um, and then what they start to do is they slip in the odd fraudulent one, and then something remarkable happens. The agents can then start to recognise the fraud, and they can actually pick it out. But that's only after they've actually gone through and looked at the authentic thing over and over again. And that's what we need to do. We need to make sure that we can recognise these frauds and we need to involve some preparation in our lives. And, And Jude leaves us four verses to help us prepare. Now, what I'm going to do is this probably seems like it's a wee bit back to front, what I'm going to do is I'm actually going to start at the end and then go back to the beginning. Does that make sense? Yeah? So, no. All right. Just bear with me. Let's go to um, uh, Jude chapter 1, because there's only one chapter, verses, um, I know, I'm right, I'm sorry, um, verses 19 to 23. And this is what Jude says. Let's, let's just walk through God's word. There are men who divide you 
who follow mere natural instincts and do not have the spirit. But you, dear friends, build yourselves up in the most holy faith and pray in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you to eternal life. Be merciful to those who doubt. Snatch others from the fire and save them. To others show mercy mixed with fear, hating even the clothing stained by corrupted flesh. So what's the first point of recognition? How do we start to detect these frauds when they sneak into our churches? Well, the first one is, he says, they do not have the Holy Spirit. Bumpa. Yeah? So these men do not have love. They do not have joy. There's no sense of peace. There's no patience. There's no kindness. There's no self-control. There's no goodness. There's nothing in terms of faithfulness, and there certainly isn't any gentleness. So all the hallmarks of God's Holy Spirit are completely missing. Now, I know we all have our bad hair days, yeah? Look at me. I don't have any. So, um, and, and we, we do make mistakes, and we do fall into sin, but these guys... They have nothing of God's Holy Spirit. There is no fruit. And that's the first warning that Jude gives us. And, uh, and in fact, he actually goes on to say that these men go after strange flesh. They indulge in gross immorality. They're ungodly. They deny the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ, and all of which is unnoticed. Then Jude goes on to tell us how to build ourselves up in the most holy faith. How do we do that? Well, he starts out by saying we should encourage one another. Yeah? Gee whiz, encouragement's so important. Having fellowship with Christians who you can talk to and pray to one-to-one when you're fussing, facing those tough times is so important. It's a gift. It is a gift. So encourage one another because being a Christ follower is tough. And as uh, John was talking about and we, we reflected, ask the Lord for wisdom when you just don't know. You know, asking for wisdom is not the same as asking for answers to questions because you know what, as I've found, and this came as a real thunderbolt to me, asking for wisdom doesn't give you answers. You got that? God will say, hey Dean, the answer to life's problem is this. He doesn't do that. He gives you wisdom and he'll guide you through and he'll help you to try and understand and help you to try and dig deeper and pray and to just seek his fellowship. He also encourages us to be thankful in all things. I don't know what you found, but looking back and being thankful is really easy because what we do is we pick out the good bits. Oh, I'm thankful for that bit. I've forgotten the rest. Yeah? You know? And um, unfortunately, the here and now can be a huge challenge. I mean, how, do you, how can you be thankful when you've lost your job? How can you be thankful when you're fighting cancer and you know you have a loved one who's fighting cancer? I mean, that's tough. Really tough. You know, my personal experience is is just knowing that God is there and crying out to him and telling him that you're hurting and telling him you don't understand creates a sense of thankfulness. It's like, God, I don't understand and I am disappointed and I am angry and I am upset and I just don't understand. But Lord, help me to because I just don't get it. 
And then we come into the next part where he talks about pray and the Holy Spirit. How? When we pray, we need to be alert to the Holy Spirit's uh, moving. I mean, I think of the number of times I mechanically go through my prayers. I thank you, Lord, for this bread. And You know, like John challenged us last week, to think about communion, to think about our words, to think about what we pray. And uh, when we pray and we ask the Holy Spirit, this is a deep theological term, and I hope you'll grasp this, we need to ask the Holy Spirit, and it's in the Greek, to enable the spiritual sniff test. Yeah? To help us sniff things out and say, Lord, Holy Spirit, just bring the word alive for me. Yeah? Help me to understand. And he wants us to understand in the Holy Spirit so we can discern error. Then Jude encourages us to keep ourselves in God's love as we wait on the Lord Jesus Christ to bring us to eternal life. You know, I had a funny notion of what this actually looked like. Our love as Christians toward our God and toward each other and the world is our only defense and it's our only weapon. Our love is our only weapon. The grace that we show to people is our only weapon weapon against error and like the apostle paul said it is not through persuasive argument or reasoning that the gospel came to people but through the sharing of him who is crucified and what the power of the resurrection amen amen it is only through the sacrificial love of our lord jesus christ on the cross and realizing the power of that love through forgiveness And our wayward hearts can we find strength in this world which is rejecting God's grace. It's difficult for me to say this, but sometimes knowing God's love, knowing his promises and knowing he listens and knowing he cares, knowing that we have a future with him and the love of his people are the only things that are going to keep us together and are the only things that should make us distinctive as a Christian community. Amen? Because that is who we are, because our Lord Jesus Christ is in our midst, in our people. Philip Yancey, in his amazing book, Vanishing Grace, writes, I replied, and I quote, There is a recurring theme in this book that the issue is not whether I agree with someone, but rather how I treat someone with whom I profoundly disagree. We Christians are called to be weapons of grace, which means treating our opponents with love and respect. Wow. Wow. I can't do that on my own. No way. You know, it came as a blinding revelation to me that when meditating on Jude's word, it says, wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you eternal life. And I thought waiting for the Lord during the tough times was a way of dealing with difficulty. You know, what I call the white knuckle experience is like, I'm hanging on, Lord, come back now. Have you had that experience? Get me out of here. Yeah? And, um, and then I read the Apostle Paul's words and he said, For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And then I read these words, it's kind of snuck in there by the Holy Spirit. And he says, If I am to live in the flesh, that means being fruitful labor for me. Get out. Yet which shall I choose? I cannot tell. See, what what the Word of God is saying is that during times of difficulty and pain and challenge, waiting on the Lord to return is, is our greatest desire. But during these times, and this is the part that stood out to me, 
is that the Lord wants us to be fruitful. You know what I'm saying? Man, I like to look at my watch and say, oh Lord, you're coming back now? That'd be a really good time. But he doesn't. And there's a reason. Because he wants us to be fruitful. And in this case, discerning with regard to those who would creep into our churches and preach a different gospel and whose fruit is destructive and void of any truth and love. If that's allowed into the church, it will destroy it. And that's why Jude writes us this letter. And we know this is Jude's encouragement to be fruitful during difficult times because he says, be merciful to those who doubt, verse 24, 23, and snatch others from the fire and save them. To others show mercy mixed with fear, hating even the clothing stained by corrupted flesh. Man, when I read that, I thought, how am I going to work through that one? Hmm? Well, let's have a look. Jude encourages us, he says, be merciful to doubt when we are hurting when we're experiencing significant life change, we will have pain. And there will be times when we'll be angry with God. There will be times when we feel deserted by him. And there seems to be no help in sight. And there's endless sameness. And Jude says, rather, to, rather than judge people who are hurting, who are confused, who are struggling with their faith, we're to show mercy, care, and compassion, particularly if they fall to confusing teaching. And then he goes on to say, and this is the scary part, snatch them from the fire. If you can imagine this picture, you know, you've got a little toddler or somebody, yeah? Or you've got something precious by your fire. I mean, what do you do when you see them just teetering towards the fire? What do you do? You don't think, oh, that's going to hurt, that's, that's, that's hot. What do you do? You grab them, don't you? You snatch them. And that's the word picture that, that Jude is painting for us. He says, you snatch them. Regardless of the potential risk to yourself, you snatch them out of the fire. You grab them. And that's what he's encouraging us to do. And lastly, and most problematic verse of all, and this is one I found personally challenging, he says, to others show mercy mixed with fear. Hmm, that's interesting. Hating even the clothing stained by corrupted flesh. So Jude exhorts us to show mercy in the face of fearful consequences, even when we're at the risk of personal danger or loss and potentially stained by corrupted flesh. One of the things I want to make really clear is that these people who sneak into our churches and those who attack from the outside are dangerous. Jude says, in his word, in the word, they are unreasoning animals. They have no fear. They care only for themselves. They churn up muck as they follow their own lusts. Even in the face of such corruption and external opposition, Jude tells us to show mercy mixed with a healthy dose of fear. In other words, we are not to be naive and simplistic in our response. We are to sharpen our swords. We are to be entirely dependent on God's Holy Spirit and in through that show the grace and compassion of our Lord. He even goes on to present us with a further challenge. He says, we are to hate their deeds, their corrupted flesh and outward behavior, but we must show mercy and pull them back from the fire with skill and commitment. As Jude said, we must contend for the faith. I mean, what does that look like? And this is the part that I, practically speaking, am fearful of the most, and I struggle to comprehend what it means. Because there are Christian brothers and sisters in this world who are living with us now. There are ordinary people who are living with us now. But 
listen to this. I mean, how would we respond if we no longer could openly worship God? How would we respond if our church was taken away? How would we respond if we were thrown into prison because of our belief in God? We're blessed to live in a country like Australia. How would we respond if Christian schools were viewed as discriminatory and not allowed to function because they were Christian? How would we respond if our family was taken away just because they believed in Jesus Christ our Lord and were Christ followers? How would we respond if we were portrayed as Christians, as strange, narrow-minded, bigoted, fear-mongering primitives who worshipped an angry and petulant God? These are exactly some of the consequences the early church faced. And funnily enough, that's how we're being portrayed in some instances today. Bear some thinking about. As you look through the history of the Christian church, the distinctives which contributed to the growth of the Christian church was not its military might, was not the political power plays it indulged in, it was not its wealth and centres of learning, it was not the killing off of the pagans and their places of significance which made its mark in history. When the church indulged in these practices, we know throughout human history, it left terrible scars and destruction because it is not of God. What made the church distinctive was responding in grace and truth and love in the face of terrible opposition which, starting, which started with twisting the gospel truth. In the face of difficulty and death, they pull back some of the most destructive people from the pit of hell in the face of terrible opposition and persecution and showed there was something more to this belief than just talking nice and being nice. And folks, if I was to be honest with you, I can't comprehend that. If this was not the distinctive of the early Christian church, we wouldn't have a Christian church. Amen? God changes his people. He changes us through grace and love. So what does a fraud look like? And that's uh, now go into the body of Jude. Now we've got a plan, yeah? We know what to look for. The thing that is repeated in Jude, as we've already discussed, is these people creep into our midst undetected. And he mentions that in verse 4. He says, for certain people have crept in unnoticed. Yeah? And in verse 12, this aspect of the activity has been sneaky and hidden is repeated when he says, and he liked this, these are hidden reefs at your love feasts as they feast without fear. The key thing about these people is they're adept at coming into our churches unnoticed and they join in with our community without any fear because they appear to be like us. They support their stealthy behaviour, as it says in Jude 16, because they show favouritism to gain advantage. And the most dangerous aspect of these people's behaviour is, is that they are unnoticed, they have no fear, they're very flattering, particularly of church leadership. But you get the sense with Jude that soon their real beliefs and behaviours start to shine through. And the common themes with these people is that they, number one, and this is no coincidence, they defy and reject God's authority by first defying the lordship of our Lord Jesus Christ and his impact on our lives. Jude says they deny our master and Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 4. 
The basic core of their sin when it is fully expressed in their behavior is fundamentally they do not believe that Jesus is God the Son, that he is King of Kings and that he is Lord of Lords. End of it. That's the start and that's the end. And Jude uses two sets of three examples to underscore what he's getting at. So if you come with me into verse 5, it says in verse 5 of Jude, the Lord came at one time and delivered his people out of Egypt, but they, they were later destroyed, those who did not believe. And the angels who did not keep their positions of authority, but abandoned their proper dwelling, these he kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. In a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual morality and perversion. They serve as an example for those who suffer punishment of eternal fire. Wow. <laughs> when you read that, he's not pulling any punches. You get a sense of that? Yeah? Yeah? Firstly, he goes into what sparked God's judgment in history. And fundamentally, it's not hard, is unbelief. Unbelief in who he is. So, for example... When God acted by leading the children out of Egypt during the Exodus and he displayed his power, there was the Shekinah glory, there was the parting of the Red Sea, there was the man from heaven, there was the quail, there was water out of rocks. There were people in that population who said, that's interesting, I still don't believe. Yeah? And he talks about the angels in heaven, they were in the presence of God. They had the, 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 the angels of heaven around them and yet that wasn't good enough and they fell. We have the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah. They're on the plains, yeah? They had the richest areas in terms of agriculture or in terms of growth and prosperity, but that wasn't enough. They totally disbelieved God, but not only that, their behavior resulted in gross immorality, and we know what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah. What becomes apparent is rejection of God's authority results in the twisting, the beautiful things that God has given us. So fellowship becomes using. Sharing becomes extorting. For those who have riches beyond everything you can imagine, it's never enough. Grace is weakness. Hate is strength. Revenge is cure for loss. And the very act of sex becomes something that's perverted and twisted as well. And this is the nature of these kinds of people. This is the sort of thing that they indulge in. And then Jude goes on to tell us about the fate of these false teachers. He then goes on and says, they have taken the way of Cain. They have rushed for profit into Balaam's error and they have destroyed Korah's rebellion. So you get that, that three, that triple example again, yeah? So who are these characters? Well, we know about Cain. Cain thought he could please God through his own efforts and his own sense of personal goodness. And then, and when God rejected Cain's offering over Abel's, he was enraged and murdered him, yeah? Remember that? Yeah. Because he thought that what he did was good enough. He manufactured what he thought was a right way to get to God. And God rejected it. So what did he do? He said, right, I'll just knock him off. And he did. His thought of what was right before God was not acceptable. So he got rid of his brother. And referring to Balaam's error, Jude alludes to the greedy religionists who is wholly consumed for their love of money. Now... And I need to remind you, you just have to think of some televangelists, yeah? They're not all bad. But boy, you need to be aware of those. Hey, I've seen them. Send 49.95 and I'll pray over this handkerchief for you and you'll be healed. What? Yeah? 
And lastly, he refers to Korah's rebellion in Numbers 16, where Korah and 250 other people rebel against Moses' authority. And this is a clear indication of what these false teachers do. They ultimately rebel against the authority of the leadership of the church, of the elders, and just cause discord and division. In short, these frauds, when they fully reveal themselves, they defile and indulge the flesh. They corrupt everything around them. And Jude says they are ungodly. He also goes on and says they are licentious. (laughs) In my version, it says licentious. I like that word. I'm not sure why. Um... What does that mean? It's often used in uh, conjunction with behaviour which is awful, which is gross behaviour, sometimes of the sexual kind. And it's often used in conjunction with the Greek word for sexual morality, which is, the Greek word is pornea, from which we get the modern word pornography. Surprise, yeah? They indulge in gross immorality, they go after strange flesh, and when dreaming, even when they're dreaming, they defile their flesh. I mean, I <laughs> hope you're getting the picture now that Jude's painting a pretty dark picture of who these people are, yeah? And how they will start to express themselves. They incite rebellion and divide. They are unreasoning and they destroy the things they do not understand and have rejected. They're openly abusive. They criticize and attack who are not of the faith. So, are we getting a sense of who these people are? Or are we not at all? I hope not, Yeah? Hope not. Okay. Now, there's a really interesting article I read um, in Psychology Today. Now, I hope the elders don't take me aside and pray for me for reading something out of Psychology Today. Okay. So, Dean, it's not it's of the world, Dean. Um, but it was on the fascinating subject of dangerous cult leaders. Now, listen to this. So, this is 2015, and this is what the author says, talking about dangerous cult leaders. They all have an overabundant belief that they are special but they and they alone have the answers to problems and they had to be revered. They demand perfect loyalty from their followers. They overvalued themselves and devalued those around them. They were intolerant of criticism. Above all, they did not like being questioned or challenged. And yet, in spite of these less than charming traits, they had no trouble attracting those who were willing to overlook these features. These personality traits stand out as first warning to those who should associate with them. Now, listen to this little... I've only got four. He actually lists 50. They are exploitive of others by asking for their money and that of their relatives and putting others at financial risk. They are arrogant and haughty in their behaviour or attitude. There is an exaggerated sense of power entitlement that allows them to bend the rules and break laws. And and lastly, surprise, surprise, take sexual advantage of members of their sect or cult. Jude was written 2,000 years ago. It's not that old, is it? Yeah? It's not that old. Jude warns us to be ready to face those within our fellowship with spirit-empowered determination who would sneak in. We are to do that with planning and grace. We are to have a plan. Those who would seek to destroy our fellowship from within. But when you think about it, what Jude asked for is humanly impossible. As Paul reminds us, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly realms. He tells us, put on the full armour of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you'll be able to stand your ground, and after you've done everything, to stand. And hence the words from Jude, the last 
two verses which have magnificent power. Listen to these powerful words. And this is what he says. And I'll close on these thoughts. To him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy, to the only God, our Saviour, be glory, majesty, power and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord, through all ages, now and forevermore. Amen. The only one that will stop us from stumbling is our God, not through a sense of being right or perfect, but stopping us from losing our way, stopping us from losing hope, stopping us from giving up. He won't let us stumble. He won't ever let us give up. He is the only one who will present us faultless before our God and it will be through our Lord Jesus Christ, nobody else. We will not be able to point to any merit of our own, any goodness of our own. And you know it's a relief. Because one day when we get to heaven, we're going to stand before our Heavenly Father with our Lord Jesus Christ, and he will say to us with great joy, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into my joy, into my rest. And then we all say, as Christians, as a fellowship together in heaven, with worship and praise, to the only God, our Saviour, be glory, majesty, power and authority through Jesus Christ, our Lord, before all ages, now and forever. And the people said, Amen. Let's pray. Lord Heavenly Father, we thank you for the privilege of of spending time in your word and we pray that your spirit will direct and and, uh, guide our hearts as we deal with sometimes challenging error. I pray that, Lord, that as we go out into this week afresh that we will think about the plan, we'll think about the things that we need to do, must do, to combat error. And Lord, I pray that you'll help us to do it with grace and with love and to show this world that We are known to be your disciples through the love that we have for one another and the love we have for people. Thank you, Lord, for the privilege of being in your word today. In Jesus' name.